It's great to, it's great to be back uh, with God's people. And it's great to be back in Estevan, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see you here. And to be quite frank, I, I'm thrilled to see so many of you here. Uh, what a great thing this is. Um, I don't know how you found watching services uh, online, but let me tell you one of the hardest things that I've faced in my however many years of ministry it's been has been preaching to the one-eyed audience, uh, to that camera. It is, it is just tough, just tough, and it is, it is such a privilege to be back here. We're, we're still, uh, you know, got hurdles uh, before us. We have things to overcome. Um, you know, there are still things that, that, that we're, we're not able to do yet, but there's so much that we can do, and, and this is one of them. And again, I am just so happy to be here with you uh, and to be here among God's people. He boarded the Titanic as a first-class passenger in cabin C-104. It was to be his 40th, 40th transatlantic crossing. This Canadian from an extraordinarily well-to-do family had been educated at the best of Canadian private schools. Arthur Godfrey Puchin went on to serve in the Canadian Army and even played a key ceremonial role in the coronation of George V, King George V, in 1911. On that fateful night. After the initial collision, Puchin noticed that lifeboat number six was poorly manned and mostly empty, and, and he came forward to one of the ship's officers saying that he was an expert yachtsman, uh, which he was, and could aid in ensuring the safety of the people on board that boat. And so the officer suggested that if Puchin could do it, he should swing out over the boat and uh, climb down into the lifeboat. Because after all, if he's as good of a sailor as he claimed, he could certainly do that. And so Puchin then took the rope, swung out over the boat, swung off, off the ship, and climbed down to lifeboat number six. He was the only male passenger that would be allowed into a lifeboat that night. Later, Puchin claimed that he didn't realize the Titanic's fate until he viewed the ship from the lifeboat. But for the rest of his life, he was branded a coward and he was publicly mocked. But Puchin is known also for another decision that he made on that same night. After the initial collision, he quickly returned to his cabin. And there he stood. He had a decision set before him whether to take the $300,000 in money and jewelry and securities 
that he had in his stateroom. Or to take the three oranges that were sitting there. In 1987, Puchin's wallet was recovered from the Titanic's debris field. Inside it, you could find Toronto streetcar tickets and traveler's checks and his business card. All the stuff he left behind was found there. Later, he noted, the money seemed like a mockery to me at the time. And so I took the oranges. I took the oranges instead. At the right time, in the right hands, the otherwise mundane comes shining through. To the untrained eye, it's a stick. Maybe a, a big stick, but it's still just a stick. But for a shepherd, the rod or the staff is far more than just convenient. It's far more than just valuable. It really is indispensable. And probably what helps to make it so indispensable is its diversity. I mean, in spite of all appearances, it's not merely a stick. For example, it's, it's an extension for, for reaching stray sheep or or it's a club to fend off would-be predators. Or it's a, it's a crutch to help you traverse that rough terrain. Or, or it could be a lever to help you move large logs or rocks. Or it's a, it, could, it could even be a prod to help you discover if that lump of whatever is alive or not. But no matter how it's being used in a given moment, a rod or a, a staff is a crucial part of a shepherd's outfit. Much like these guys, whose wardrobe associated the members with various roles. The motorcycle cop, the cowboy, the construction worker. In the days of Moses, to be carrying a staff, to be carrying a rod, provided a sense of identity. It was, in some ways, your, your calling card. If you sported a staff, if you carried a rod, people knew what you did for a living. It wasn't just a tool. It was also a symbol. It was an identifier. It told people something about you. It labeled whoever carried it 
as a shepherd. And it marked not only what you did, but to a degree, it described who you were. It told others what you did for a living. It told others your station in life. You mean that guy with the staff? Ah, you mean the shepherd. In Moses' case, undoubtedly his staff served to remind him who he was. That staff, that stick would remind him where his journey had taken him. And we might be tempted to say that it's also reminded him where his journey had left him. It seems like Moses' staff, apart from the clothing on his back and the the sandals that used to be on his feet, was all that he had. It was all that he owned. In Exodus, when he meets God at the burning bush, even his sandals come off. And he's standing there, next to naked. But the thing that he has in his hand is his staff. Moses was a shepherd. That's true. But if you read in Exodus, you'll note that the sheep that he's looking after, that he's investing his life into, aren't even his. They belong to his father-in-law. And to make matters maybe even worse, apparently, so does Moses. At 80 years old, after all he had been raised and trained to be, after 40 years in the wilderness looking after these dirty, stinking sheep, all Moses has to show for himself is a stick. A stick. And it's likely that the the constant presence and his constant dependence on this staff would serve for Moses as a constant reminder not only of who he was in that moment but maybe even more profoundly It would remind him of the man he once was. There was a time, you'll remember, he certainly did, when Moses was one of the most famous 
the richest and the most powerful men in all the world. He was, as the movie reminds us, the prince of Egypt. And instead of sporting a a stick, he was used to clutching scepters and swords. And now the only thing in his hand The only thing he has is a stick. A stick. A stick. That's all he has to show for himself. That's all he has. That's all he seems to be. And now in this story in Exodus chapter 4, to add insult to injury, this mysterious voice from the bush, a, a voice that he's just met, calls on him. To throw it down. To take the only thing he has going for him and to throw it down. I mean, after four decades of looking after sheep, while it wasn't much, he had probably grown to appreciate this stick, this staff, this rod. I mean, he'd probably discarded lesser options. He'd probably shaped it. He'd probably smoothed it. He'd probably formed it. He had, he had cared for it just like it had cared for him. They'd seen much together. He had great memories with this piece of wood. It had become his friend. It was valuable to him. It was seemingly indispensable. It it was all that he had. It defined him. He was almost literally nothing. Nothing without it. It gave him his sense of purpose. It gave him his sense of value. When the story of Moses in front of the burning bush is told, preachers and speakers and pastors are often quick to to point to Moses' doubts. His evading of God's call and his shirking of responsibility. 
But let's be gracious to moment, to Moses for a moment. After all, he had just met this voice from the burning bush. Just met this voice from a burning bush. And ask yourself this. If you knew only what Moses knew, would you really react any differently? I'm pretty sure that if a mysterious voice from a burning bush called on me and commanded me to, to cast down my rod and then ultimately to go and confront the most powerful man in the world with armies at his call and all I've got is a stick. I too might hesitate just a little. Just a little. And so I want us to look at Moses in a bit of a different light here. Right? Actually, I think pretty quickly, Moses moves from being a guy who makes excuses from words of doubt to an act of trust and of faith. You know, there are moments where I think that Moses is from Saskatchewan. Because when somebody asks him to do something, his first response is no. And then he does it anyway. <laughs> but when the voice calls for him to throw it down and possibly damage the only thing that he owns, the, the thing that he depend on, depends on, the thing that that identifies him, he does it. And then instantly it turns into a snake. And don't think that Moses at this moment might not be making the connection between that snake on the ground and the Pharaoh that this voice had just suggested that he confront. Because one of the symbols for the Pharaoh was an asp. That probably is, is hitting Moses better, more directly, than, than it would come to us right away. But Moses' faith doesn't even just stop there. In fact, I think it goes up a notch. Because God calls him to pick it up. And the faith in that act, God doesn't turn it back into a staff and then tells him to pick it up. He instructs him to pick it up while it's still a snake. And, and, Beyond that, God tells him to grab it by the tail. 
Here, of course, Moses, the shepherd with 40 years of experience, would know this. If you're going to pick it up, the one place you don't pick it up by is the tail. That is the stupidest place to take hold of a snake, even a garter snake. But still, trusting even more than previously in this voice from the bush, Moses does it. And it returns in his hand to being a rod. And so I think if we're honest, I think if we're fair, we'll note that Moses, well, he starts with doubt. His trust in God reaches a a pretty significant height. And that it does so pretty quickly. And so, well, there's doubt in this story. I don't think the story is primarily a story of doubt. But a story of faith. This story is not the last time in Scripture that we hear of the rod of the staff. Even shortly after, in verse 17, God commissions Moses to go to Pharaoh and tells Moses, take this staff in your hand so that you can perform the signs with it. And in, in faith, Moses takes it with him. And then if you're following along in verse 20, you'll note that this is true. And it's interesting to me that, that I know that God, of course, can do what He wills without help or without props. He created the universe out of nothing. Imagine what He can do with a stick. Uh, Still, he tells Moses to take this trusty staff with him. And he does. God doesn't need the stick. But still, he tells Moses to take it with him. And consequently, throughout the story of Moses, throughout the story of the Exodus, even into the building of the temple, this staff, this rod, continues to appear and has a bit of a storied career. But there's something in particular that I want you to note in this passage. When God initially tells Moses to take the staff with him and to go to Pharaoh, that same staff that he just turned into a snake In verse 20, the language changes in regard to the staff. At the beginning of the story, it's the staff that belongs to Moses. But in verse 20, it's now called the staff of God. 
It becomes the staff of God. Why? Why? I'd suggest that this thing is now called the staff of God because in spite of being in Moses' hand, it's going to be used by God to fulfill His purposes. On its own, in the hand of Moses, the staff has value. The staff has purpose. The staff has power. But in the hand of God, its value, its power, and its purpose becomes immeasurable. In these days, strange and stern, We too, like Moses, might be longing for the old days and thinking about the old days and all the things that we used to have in the old days that today we don't seem to have. But I wonder if this story doesn't remind us that life's thrown curveballs to people before. And when God calls them to, to do and to be what He needs them to do and who He needs them to be, that what they primarily need, what God primarily wants from them, is their willingness, their obedience, and their ability to take up what they actually have and to proceed into brave ministry with that and confront the stern and strange world in front of them. So here's my question to you. Not thinking about what we used to have, but thinking about what we have. What has life given you? What has life left you with that might not seem like much that God can still use? What talents, what things, what relationships do you still have that God can use? And that God can make so much more of, even than you can. I think God is still asking the same questions. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What, Estevan Alliance Church, is in your hand? What's in your hand? What has your journey given you? What has life left with you? But still then, like Moses, you have to be willing to
to throw it down, to surrender it, that little thing that maybe you don't even think much of. Throw it down. Surrender it to Him. Even being unsure of what He's going to do with it once you do. We can't hold too tightly to those things. We can't clutch them too closely. We have to give them to Him. And while its purposes and its intentions in your hands may be great, in God's hands they'll even be greater. What is in your hand? What is in your hand? What do you have? What do you have that God can use to set his people free?